You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode 76 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. It's time again to spend some time with Terence McKenna. This time we will hear two talks, both recorded sometime in the early 1990s. The first talk is a bit longer and it's called Opening the Doors of Creativity. And the other shorter talk is called Shamanism. The talk Opening the Doors of Creativity I love because everything in life is about creation. And in order to create, you have to be creative. When you think about someone that is creative, you instantly think of an artist. Secondly, perhaps a scientist, as only a creative mind can come up with good questions and methods of answering them. But at the beginning of human history, the artist and the scientist were one and the same. It was the shaman. And this is where Terence begins his talk about creativity. I will not go into more details on what he is going to talk about, but please pay attention to his most important point, and that is that man, and by man I mean all genders, is good. That we are not a fallen species. Instead, we are stumbling clumsily up the mountain where the light is waiting for us, be it God, utopia, or a starship. Well, the theme that unites these lectures is... uh creativity and the techniques by which the artist can uh, refine his or her vision, expand the vision, communicate the vision. And um, before I get into that issue, I thought I would talk just a little bit about my notion of creativity per se. What is it uh, uh, in and of itself? And when I think like that, of course, I cast my mind back to nature. Nature is the great visible engine of creativity against which all other creative efforts uh, are measured. And Creativity in nature has a curious uh, distribution. It's something which accumulates through time. If we stand back and look at the universe, we see that at its earliest moments, it was very simple. It was a plenum. It was without characters or characteristics. It was what in Hindu mythology is called the Turaya, which is described as attributeless. And naturally, if something is without attribution, you can't say much about it. It takes a while for it to undergo a declension into more creative realms. And these creative realms are distinguished as domains of difference. The precondition for creativity is, I think, disequilibrium, what mathematicians now call chaos. And through the life of the universe, as temperatures have fallen, more and more complex compound structures have arisen. And though there's been um, you know, many a uh, 
slipping back in this process, over very large spans of time, we can say that creativity is conserved, that the universe becomes more creative. And out of that state of creative fecundity, more creativity is manifest. So that from that point of view, the universe is almost what we would have to call an art-making machine, an engine for the production of ever more novel forms of connectedness, ever more exotic juxtapositions of disparate elements. And out of this, uh, I believe, arises implicitly a set of principles that we can then apply to uh, the human artist in the human world. Nature's creativity is obviously the wellspring of human creativity. We emerge out of nature almost, and this idea I think was fairly present close to the surface of the medieval mind, we emerge out of nature almost as its finest work of art. Uh, the, the medieval mind spoke of the productions of nature. This is a phrase you hear as late as the 18th century, the productions of nature. And human creativity uh, emerges out of that, whether you have a model of the Aristotelian um, great ladder of being or a more modern evolutionary view where we actually uh, consolidate emergent properties and somehow bring them to a focus of self-reflection. Now, I'm sure that we couldn't carry out a discussion of this sort without observing that the prototypic figure for the artist, as well as for the scientist, is the shaman. The shaman is the figure at the beginning of human history that unites the doctor, the scientist, and the artist into a single notion of caregiving and creativity. And I think that, you know, to whatever degree art over the past several centuries has wandered in the desert, it is because this shamanic function has been either suppressed or forgotten. And we've, uh, different images of the artist have been held up at different times. Uh, the artist as uh, artisan, the artist as uh, handmaiden of a ruling class or family, the artist as designer for the production of integrated objects into a civilization. Uh, this notion of the artist as mystical journeyer, as one who goes into a world unseen by others and then returns to tell them of it, was pretty much lost in the post-medieval and Renaissance conception of art up until the late 19th century or early 20th century 
where, beginning with the Romantics, there is a new permission to explore the irrational. This really is the bridge back to the archaic shamanic function of the artist. Permission to explore the irrational. The Romantics did it with their um, uh, elevation of titanic emotion, romantic love specifically. The symbolists in the mid-19th century did it by a uh, re-emphasis on the emotional content of the image and a rejection of the previous rationalism. And that emphasis on the image and on the emotions set the stage then for what I take to be the, the truly shamanic movements in art, which begin really with Alfred Jarry in the late 1880s and early 1890s. Jarry, you may remember, was the founder of something called the École du Pataphysique, the Pataphysical College. Jarry announced Pataphysics is the science. The problem was nobody could understand what it meant or what it stood for, including Jarry. Jarry uh, was tight with L'Entremont, who you may recall said, I am fascinated with that kind of beauty that arises when a sewing machine meets a bicycle on an operating table. <laughs> See, this was a true effort to bend the boundaries of art, to create new permission, permission really for the unthinkable. And this, uh, again, reinforces the shamanic function. What do we mean when we say the unthinkable? We mean the envelope of that which can be conceived. And for uh, at least 200 years, the ostensible mission of the artist has been to test the conceptual and imagistic envelope of what the society is willing to tolerate. And this has taken many forms. The uh, deconstruction of imagery that we get with abstract expressionism, going back into impressionism and the pointillism, or uh, the permission for the irrational imagery of the unconscious, surrealism and, uh, and German expressionism make use of this permission, always the idea being to somehow destroy the idols of the tribe. Dissolve the conceptual boundary of ordinary expectation. Well, in order to do this, it seems to me uh, there is a precondition for the creation of art, which I call understanding. And I don't mean this uh, in an intellectual sense. I mean it in the sense that Alfred North Whitehead intended when he defined understanding as the apperception of pattern as such. As such. There's nothing more to it than that. You see, if we were to look at this room 
and we were to squint our eyes and uh, I'm doing this right now and I see that the room divides itself into people dressed in red and people dressed in blue. This is a pattern and it tells me something about what I'm looking at. Now I shift my depth of field. Now I'm looking at where men are sitting and where women are sitting. This is a different pattern and it tells me more about what I am looking at. The number of these patterns theoretically present in any construction is infinite. That says to me then that the depth of understanding cannot be known. It cannot be known. Everything is eminent. William Blake makes this point, you know, that you can see infinity in a grain of sand. So understanding then is the, pre, the precondition for creativity. And this understanding is not so much intellectual as it is visual. Visual. And in thinking about this, I realized what an influence upon my own ideas in this area uh, Aldous Huxley was. Not the Huxley that we might ordinarily associate uh, with my concerns, the Huxley of the doors of perception and heaven and hell, but the Huxley of a very modest book that he wrote in the early 50s called The Art of Seeing. The Art of Seeing. And in that book, he makes the point that a good art education begins with a good drawing hand. That to be able to coordinate the hand and eye and to see into nature, to see into the patterns present as such is the precondition for a kind of approach to the absolute. Now, out of this process of seeing, which I'm calling understanding, the creative process ushers in novelty. And many of you have heard me speak of novelty in another context, in the context of nature as a novelty-producing engine of some sort and ourselves almost as the, hand, <clears throat> the handiwork of nature. But this same handiwork of nature which we represent, we also internalize and re-express through the novelty of the human world. Well now, if we take seriously the, the shamanic model as a basis for authentic art, then certainly in the modern context, what we see missing from the repertoire of the artist are shamanic techniques. And it's for the discussion of these shamanic techniques, I believe, um, that I was brought here this evening. So I want you to cast your mind back to a great seminal moment, germinal moment 
in the history of human thought, which was about 25,000 years ago, the great glaciers that had covered most of the Eurasian landmass began to melt. And human populations that had been islanded from each other for about uh, 15 millennia began to recontact each other and reconnect. And out of this comes what is called the Magdalenian Revolution from 18,000 to 22,000 years ago. And what it is, is nothing less than a tremendous explosion of creativity and aesthetic self-expression on the part of the human species. We find uh, the, for the first time, bone and antler technology takes its place along with stone technology. Musical instruments appear over a wide area. And cave paintings, some paintings in areas and recesses so remote from the surface of the ground that it takes several hours to reach them, are painted and uh, set up in dramatic tableaus specifically designed to bring together sound, light, and dance in hierophanies, extravaganzas of aesthetic output that uh, invoke a kind of transcendent other that human beings for the first time are trying to come to grips with and make some kind of cultural statement about. And this pulling into matter of the ideas of human beings, first, you know, in the forms of uh, 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 beadwork and chipped stone and carved bone, within 20,000 years ushers into the kinds of high civilizations that we see around us and points us toward the kind of extraplanetary mega-civilization that we can feel operating on our own present like a kind of great attractor. Now, this whole intellectual adventure in exteriorization of ideas is entirely an aesthetic adventure. Until very uh, recently, utility is only a secondary consideration. The real notion is a kind of seizure by the tremendum, by the other, which then forces us to take up matter, clay, bone, flint, and put it through a mental process where we then excrete it as objects that have lodged within them ideas. This seems to be the special, unique, transcendental function of the human animal is the production and condensation of ideas. And what made it possible for the human animal is language. If you're seeking the thumbprint of the transcendental on the, on the uh, myriad phenomena that compose life on this planet, to my mind, 
the place to look is human language. Human language represents an ontological break of major magnitude with anything else going on on this planet. I mean, yes, bees dance and dolphins squeak and chimpanzees do what they do, but it's a hell of a step from there to uh, Wallace Stevens, let alone William Shakespeare. Uh, language is the unique province of human beings, and language is the unique tool of the artist. The artist is the person of language. And I've you know, given a lot of thought to this because um, the work that I've done with psilocybin mushrooms and the observations of psychedelic plant use in the Amazon centered around ayahuasca lead me to the conclusion that it is the synergy and catalysis of language that lies behind not only the emergence of human consciousness out of animal organization, but then its ability to set a course for a transcendental dimension and pursue that course against all the vicissitudes of biology and history over 10 or 15,000 years. Language has made us more than a group of pack-hunting monkeys. It's made us a group of pack-hunting monkeys with a dream. <laughs> and the fallout from that dream has given us our glory and our shame, our weaponry, our technology, our art, our hopes, our fears. All of this arises out of our own ability to articulate and to communicate with each other. And I use this in the broadest sense. I mean, for me, the glory of the human animal is cognitive activity, song, dance, sculpture, poetry, uh, all of these cognitive activities, when we participate in them, we cross out of the domain of animal organization and into the domain of a genuine relationship to the transcendent. As you know, shamans in all times and places uh, gain their power through relationships with helping spirits, which they sometimes call ancestors, sometimes call nature spirits, but somehow the acquisition of a relationship to a disincarnate intelligence is the precondition for authentic shamanism. Now, nowhere in our world do we have an institution like that that we do not consider pathological except in the now very thinly spread tradition of the muse that artists alone among human beings are given permission to talk in terms of my inspiration or 
a voice which told me to do this or uh, a vision that must be realized the the thin sh the thin line the thin thread of shamanic descent into our profane world leads through the office of the artist and so if society is to somehow take hold of itself at this penultimate moment as we literally waver on the brink of planetary extinction then the artist like Ariadne following her thread out of the labyrinth is going to have to follow this shamanic thread back through time and you know one of the most disempowering things that has been done to us by the male dominant culture is to um, brush out our footprints into the past we don't have a clue as to how we got here most people can't think further back than the first Nixon administration <laughs> let alone you know uh, the arrival of the Vikings the fall of Chitaljuyuk the melting of the glaciers so forth and so on we have been disempowered by a rational tendency to deny our irrational roots which are a kind of embarrassment to science because science is uh, the special province of the ego and magic and art are the special province of something else I could name it but I won't it prefers to be unnamed I think so how seriously then are we to take this um, I'll call it an obligation to follow the shamanic thread back into time well I, I think that it is uh, a matter of saving our own souls that this is the real challenge you know I love to dig at the yogans by saying nobody ever went into an ashram with their knees knocking in fear over the tremendous dimension they know they were about to enter through meditation still truer and more sad still more true and more sad is the notion that very few of us pick up our sculpting tools or our airbrush with our knees knocking with fear because we know we are invoking and acting with the muse at our elbow and somehow I think the artists need to recover this sense of uh, mystery one of the most depressing things to me about the art scene and I had a chance to reconnect with this because I was just in New York is uh, it now has a kind of directionless quality you can go into a gallery and you cannot tell whether it is 1990 1980 1970 or 1960 because a kind of eschatological malaise has settled over art all notion of any forward movement toward a transcendental ideal 
has been put aside for um, the exploration of idiosyncratic vision. And I grant you, this is a, 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 a tension, and perhaps in the question period we can talk about this. There is a tension between the individual vision and uh, the notion of an attractor or, or a, a collective vision which wants to be expressed. But to my mind, this is the same dichotomous tension that haunts the individual in his or her relationship to Tao. You know, we don't want to be lost in ego, but on the other hand, if we completely express the Tao, we have no sense of self. The ideal seems to be a kind of coincidentia oppositorum, a kind of literalizing of a paradox where what we have is Tao but we perceive it as ego. And in the application of this notion to the art problem, I would say what we need is a situation where schooling, if you want to put it that way, or a tendency toward a coherent vision expressed by many artists is spontaneous. Each artist imagines that they are pursuing their own vision, yet obviously they are in the grip of an archetype which is rising through the medium of the unconscious. Now the last time we saw this in American art was in abstract expressionism, which was probably in terms of the values, in terms of tension and uh, the amount of uh, emotional gain between one artistic moment and another the break between abstract expressionism and what preceded it was the most radical break in American art in this century. Abstract expressionism actually carried us in to a confrontation with what the quantum physicists were telling us, that the universe is field upon field of integrated vibration, that there is no top level there is no bottom level, that the ordinary structures of provisional space-time are simply that, that if we can rise out of the human dimension, then we discover these larger, more integrated dimensions where mind and nature somehow interpenetrate each other. A vision like that, a coherent vision, has yet to announce itself here in the uh, post-history, pre-apocalypse phase of things. Well, I guess I have a, a kind of reactionary side uh, when I think about the creative endeavor. I believe that um, the psychedelic experience as encountered by each of you in the privacy of your own mind, or as encountered by a pre-literate uh, society somewhere in the world, that that psychedelic experience is in a way the Rosetta Stone, not only for um, understanding the encryption that our own lives represent each 
to ourselves, but it's also a Rosetta Stone for uncoding the historical experience. Art is this endeavor to leave the animal domain behind, to create another dimension orthogonal to the concerns of uh, ordinary history. And this orthogonal domain, to my mind, is glimpsed most clearly in the psychedelic experience. The psychedelic experience shows you more art in an hour and a half than the human species has produced in 15 or 20,000 years. Now, this is an incredible claim. This is why I make it. Uh, the, the energy barrier which separates us from this tremendous repository of transcendental imagery is very low. You know, it's a matter of a little personal commitment and uh, the substances which make the transition possible. The perturbation of brain chemistry is easily done. What is not so easily done is the assimilation of the consequences of this act. Uh, ordinarily, we assume that consciousness is channeled between tremendously deep walls that there is no way to um, force uh, a confrontation with the other or the transcendent or the unconscious. We tend to assume that you know we're going to have to do double duty at the ashram for three decades before you're vouchsafed even a glimpse into these places. Uh, this is not true. Culture and this is my message to artists and to anybody else who cares to notice, culture is a plot against the expansion of consciousness. And this plot prosecutes its, uh, its goals through a uh, limiting of language. Language is the battleground over which the, the fight will take place because what we cannot what we cannot say we cannot communicate and by say I mean dance paint sing meme what we cannot say we cannot communicate we can conceive of things that we cannot communicate but and I think every one of us here has done that. And that's a thrilling thing. That is uh, the deep homework. The, the psychedelic inner astronaut sees things which no human being has ever seen before. And no human being will ever see again. But in fact, this has no meaning unless it is possible to carry it back into the collectivity. And what motivates me to talk to groups like this is the belief that we do not have centuries 
of gently unfolding time ahead of us in which to uh, uh, you know gently tease apart the threads of the human endeavor and create a bright new world uh, that's not our circumstance uh, this is a fire in a madhouse <laughs> and uh, to get a hold on the situation I think we are going to have to force the issue well uh, one, one way of forcing the issue or a, a chemical definition of forcing the issue when you're talking about a chemical reaction is catalysis we want to catalyze consciousness we want to move it faster toward its goals whatever those goals are well I believe that to the present moment language again in the broadest sense speech dance musical composition language has just been allowed to grow like topsy it's uh, been a kind of uh, every man for himself situation now what we really need as we see ourselves moving from one species among tens of thousands of species on this planet over the past 10,000 years we have redefined ourselves and now like it or not we are the custodians of the destiny of this planet our decisions affect every life form on the planet and yet we are still communicating with each other with the extremely precise medium of small mouth noises mediated by ignorance and hate <laughs> <clears throat> this doesn't seem like the way to do business <laughs> as we approach the third millennium so it, it what I uh, what I'm hopeful for and what I actually see happening I mean I think that we're on the right track the birth of a new kind of humanity is going to take place but there are still a lot of decisions to be made how violent shall this birth be what toll shall it take upon our mother the earth what shape shall the baby be in when it finally is delivered these are the decisions that artists can mediate and control most people are afraid of the unconscious this is why uh, you know you can have a, a psychedelic compound like DMT which is very much like ordinary brain chemistry uh, appears completely physiologically harmless uh, only lasts 10 minutes extremely powerful and generally in this society you have no takers this is because there has been a failure of moral courage and the failure of moral courage is uh, perhaps most evident in our own community the community of, uh, of the artists in a way uh, it's the poets that have failed us because they have not uh, provided a song or sung a vision that we could all move in concert to so now we are in the absurd position of being able to do 
anything and what we are doing is fouling our own nest and pushing ourselves toward planetary toxification and extinction. This is because the poets, the artists, have not articulated an, a, um, a moral vision. The moral vision must come from the unconscious. It doesn't have to do, I believe, with uh, you know these um, post-meaning movements in art, deconstructionism, and this sort of thing. That art's task is to save the soul of mankind, and that anything less is a dithering while Rome burns. Because if the artists who are self-selected for uh, being able to journey into the other, if the artist cannot find the way, then the way cannot be found. Ideology is extremely alien to art. Political ideology, I mean. And if you will but notice, it is political ideology that has been calling the shots for the last seven or eight hundred years. We can transcend politics if we can put some other program in place. You cannot transcend politics into a void. And I believe that a world without ideology could be created if what were put in place of ideology were the notion of the realization of the good, the true, and the beautiful. You know, the three-tiered canon of the Platonic aesthetic. The reconnect the notion of the good, the true, and the beautiful. Then use psychedelics to empower the artist to go into this vast dimension that surrounds human history on all sides to an infinite depth and return from that world with the transcendental images that can lift us to a new cultural level. The muse is there. The, the dull maps that rationalism has given us are nothing more than whistling past the graveyard by the bad little boys of science. You only have to avail yourselves of these shamanic tools to rediscover a nature which is not mute, as Sartre said, in a kind of culmination of the modern viewpoint. Nature is not mute. It is man who is deaf. And the way to open our ears, open our eyes, and reconnect with the intent of a living world is through the psychedelics. Now, as you know, biology runs on genes, and genes are the units of meaning of heredity. But we could make a model of the informational environment that is represented by culture. And in fact, this is done. A word has been invented, meme, M-E-M-E, -E, meme. A meme is not the smallest unit of heredity. 
A meme is the smallest unit of meaning of an idea. Ideas are made of memes. And I think the art community might uh, function with more efficiency in the production of visionary aesthetic breakthroughs if we would think of ourselves as an environment modeled after the natural environment where we as artists are attempting to create means which enter an environment of other means that are in competition with each other and out of this competition of means ever more appropriate, adapted, and uh, suitable ideas can gather and uh, link themselves together into higher and higher organisms. Now, in order for this to happen, there is an obligation upon each one of us to carry our ideas clearly, because in the same way that a gene must be copied correctly to be replicated, or it will cause some pathological mutation, a meme must be correctly replicated or it will cause a pathological mutation. For instance, I would say what the Nazis did to Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy was a bad cop, a miscopied meme became a toxic mutation inside a culture. So uh, I would suggest to the people in this room tonight that you take a good look around at who's here. Artistic people, psychedelic people look pretty much like everybody else out in society. But we have come here tonight self-selected for our interest in the empowering capacity of psychedelic plants and the empowering capacity of art. So we represent an affinity group, a population with a potential for uh, uh, mutagenic impact on the ideological structures of the rest of society. So look around. Someone here has what you need. And if you can only figure out who it is, you can make a novel connection to move then into a new level of creativity. Well, what is this new level of uh, creativity? Some of you may be familiar with a theme that was very big in medieval religious art, which was uh, the apocalypse. Uh, of St. John or of somebody. There are a number of, of these apocalypses. And I think that uh, many of us may come out of a kind of secular background or have not given this kind of a religious idea too much consideration. But my uh, idiosyncratic conclusion based simply on trying to be honest about the content of the psychedelic experience is that uh, human history really is on a collision course with a um, transcendental object of some sort. Uh, 
uh, it is not going to be business as usual into the endless unfolding confines of the future. Uh, the very fact that human history is occurring on this planet, the very fact that a primate has left the ordinary pattern of primate activity and gone into the business of running stock markets and uh, molecular biology labs and art museums indicates to me the nearby presence in another dimension of a kind of hyper-organizing force or what I call the transcendental object. And I believe that this transcendental object is casting an enormous shadow over the human historical landscape. So that if you're back in um, ancient Judea, you have an anticipation of the Messiah. If you are at Eleusis, at the height of the practice of the Eleusinian mysteries, you have an anticipation of uh, the dark God. These anticipations of an unspeakable transcendent reality that are always clothed in the, uh, in the assumptions of the individual artist and the society in which he or she is working are in fact genuine and that you don't have to give your o yourself over to fundamentalist religion to connect with the fact that human history is an adventure. And this adventure has a number of startling reverses and sudden plot shifts that are very difficult to anticipate and that we are coming up on one of those. The civilization that was created out of the collapse of the medieval world has now shown its contradictions to be unbearable. And though no one of us knows what the shape of the new civilization will be, somehow in the singing of the ayahuasca songs in the rainforest, in the tremendous hypermetallic transcendental off-planetary flash of psilocybin, in the uh, teaching of the self-transforming machine elves that seem to dwell in the DMT dimension, we see that the ordinary linear expectations of history are breaking down and that uh, the, the truth of the eminence of the mystery is breaking through all the structures of denial of uh, the male dominator paradigm that has been in place so long. The way to make this birth process smooth, the way to bring it to a conclusion that will not betray the thousands and thousands of generations of people who, who suffered birth and disease and migration and starvation and lonely death so that we could sit here this evening, the redeeming of the human enterprise all lies then in helping this thing come to birth. And each artist is an antenna to the transcendental other. And as we go with our own history, 
into that thing and then create a unique confluence of our uniqueness and its uniqueness, we collectively create an arrow, an arrow out of history, out of time, perhaps even out of matter, that will redeem then the idea uh, that man is good, redeem the idea that man is good. This is the promise of art and its fulfillment is never more near than the present moment. Thank you very much. This next talk is much shorter and it's called Shamanism. And since the talk you just heard mentioned Shamanism quite a bit, I think it is fitting to also play this one. Well, in 15 minutes to try and say something about shamanism and hallucinogens, we're just going to touch the surface. And I figure the simplest way to do this is just to sort of unload on you how I see these things. Um, shamanism is not some obscure concern of cultural anthropologists. Shamanism is how religion was practiced for its first million years. Up until about 12,000 years ago, there was no other form of religion on this planet. That was how people attained some kind of access to the sacred. And uh, so shamanism then becomes uh, about technique. And if any of you are students of the literature of shamanism, you probably know that one of the great overviews of shamanism is contained in Mersiliad's book, Shamanism, the Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy. The Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy. In other words, shamanism is not so much a religion as ordinarily conceived as it is a kind of uh, pre-rational science, a kind of methodology for attaining a certain kind of experience. And then the question becomes, what experience and what's so great about it? Well, the experience that is attained, if we can attempt to rise to some kind of cosmic overview so that we are not dealing with the experience in the context of what the Mazatecs say or the Witoto or some other tribal people. But when we attempt to pool all of this descriptive data, then what is the experience that the shaman is having that is making him or her an exemplar in their own society, and in a sense, almost superhuman. Well, if you analyze thousands and thousands of these shamanic experiences, both drug, both plant-induced and non-plant-induced, the uh, overwhelming connecting thread is boundary dissolution. This is what the experience is that we are all seeking, that we call terrifying, wonderful, 
desirable, horrible, but what it is, is it's the experience of having the roof fall in and the floor fall out all at once. Boundary dissolution. Why should that be so important, so wonderful? Because it acts psychologically in the human being uh, like a birth experience. The world is made new. Everything is seen through newly opened eyes. Now, there are many techniques of shamanism uh, for attaining this state. Uh, celibacy, withholding food, ordeals, flagellation, mutilation. Doesn't sound like a program for a lot of fun, does it? <laughs> and then hallucinogenic plants. Now, it's a question which always emerges at these conferences. All of you people are talking about drugs and plant substances. Isn't there another way to do this? Isn't this what the great yogic systems, the great tantric systems of thought have opened up for us without the uh, self-polluting act of ingesting a plant into our bodies and polluting our precious bodily essences? The answer is no. No. And the further answer is, the reason the universe is constructed this way is that so you will be forced to humble yourself into the admission that you can't do it alone. Why should you be able to do it alone? Where is it writ in Adamantine that Joe Blow should be able to walk directly into the antechamber of the Most High simply because he or she wants to? Nowhere. The sine qua non fancy Latin for you can't get along without it. The sine qua non for attaining a psychedelic experience is humbling yourself to the point where you admit that you must submit to the experience of the plant or the drug. This act of surrender is the major technical uh, function you will be called upon to perform during the psychedelic trip. You just keep saying, Take me, I'm yours. Take me, I'm yours. And it will uh, do the rest. Well, this is much too much to get into in 15 minutes. But why the tension between boundary and boundary dissolution? Uh, why the tension between the closed personal world of reinforced neurotic constructs that we call ordinary psychological health. Why the tension between that and this vastly expanded and open state of being where uh, life, Tao, seems to flow through us? Well, the tension between these states has to do, I think, with the fact that there is a blind spot in the human mind. We do not like to have called to our attention uh, the animate and caring nature of the universe because the universe is something that we have had to fight our way through to get to our present position. 
I mean, how many reindeer bit the dust that we could sit here this morning? Uh, How many forests were cleared? You see, we have a long history of uh, resistance and conquest to nature. And when we experience the boundary-dissolving qualities of the hallucinogen, we learn what Pogo learned. We have met the enemy, and he is us. And closing that loop then creates a dimension of moral responsibility. And this is why the shaman is a special person, because the shaman has somehow closed the loop of moral responsibility and in so doing becomes tremendously authentic to the people uh, in the society that is constellated around the shaman. The shaman basically uh, is an exemplar, a model for how to be, not simply how to be in the psychedelic or the trance state, but how to be in the act of wooing, how to be in the act of hunting, child rearing, so forth. It's a kind of exemplar that bursts through cultural conditioning. Cultural conditioning is like bad software. It's over and over, it's diddled with and rewritten so that it can just run on the next attempt. But there is cultural hardware, and it's that cultural hardware, otherwise known as authentic being, that we are propelled toward by the example of the shaman and the techniques of the shaman. You know, if, if someone tells you that uh, vast spiritual riches await you, if you will, but give up sex, interesting food, and your own thoughts for 10 or 15 years and follow along with them, then something will be attained. This is no challenge to most of us because we have our lives to lead, mortgages to pay, children to feed, car payments. But if someone tells you, Eat this plant and you will come into your birthright. That's a real existential challenge. The excuse that it's difficult or unattainable has been removed. There can no longer be shilly-shallying around that issue. Shamanism, therefore, is a call to authenticity. Well, then the last point that I want to make, this authenticity is generally presented and has generally been presented throughout the evolution of the psychedelic movement in the United States as a kind of personal integrity, a kind of psychological health, as though you had confronted all your demons and slain them and you are now balanced or individuated or whole or something like that. That's true. That is the first stage of the shamanic integration. But that is not the goal of the shamanic integration. Otherwise, it just becomes a kind of chemical, uh, uh, chemically-assisted psychotherapy. The goal is then, having attained that balance, that wisdom, that, uh, that connection, to then rise up to a level of universal meaning. In other words, 
to break through the machinery of cultural conditioning in the same way that the shaman does and to attempt to uh, discover something authentic, something authentic outside the self-generated language cloud. And to my mind, what this authentic thing is, is... hard to know how to put it, but it's the animate quality that resides within the psychedelic experience, that the, the universal mind is alive, is sentient, is perceiving, is there to meet you when you come through from the other side. So we're not talking about psychedelics as a spotlight to be turned on to reveal the detritus of our own personal unconscious. It is not a spotlight. It is not shining from behind you. It is shining ahead of you. It is actually that the same organizational principles which called us forth into self-reflection have called forth self-reflection out of the planet itself. And the problem then is for us to suspect this, act on our suspicion, and be good detectives and track down the spirit in its lair. And this is what shamans are doing. They are hunters of spirit. Now, anthropology tends to want to well, place in a museum diorama is too harsh a phrase, <laughs> but wants to freeze these things in context so they become artifacts. So then we say, well, how do the Witoto think about the shaman? And I've even seen papers, what do the Witoto think of the shaman in winter? What do the Witoto think of the shaman in summer? Well. Not only is this a stupid question on the face of it, but since they don't have winter and summer, it's a stupid question beneath the surface. Shamanism does not exist in the same way that other culture-bound institutions exist for us to catalog and reflect on. Rather, this is a case where we played the role of the prodigal son, the descent into physis, the descent into matter. For 15,000 years, we have wandered to a desert, and we are now very well adapted to the deserts of rationalism, materialism, state politics, patriarchy, so forth and so on. But there is no food in a desert. <laughs> Eventually, there has to be a promised land. And I believe that many people in this room know that personally, that promised land is the psychedelic experience. The larger challenge, and it is a larger challenge, it's easy to fix your own mind, the larger challenge is to somehow make this private doorway a public option, empower ourselves to speak of this in such a way that it cannot be put down. It cannot be rolled over. It cannot be pigeonholed. It cannot be handed over to a clique of experts. 
but rather it has to be confronted as the authentic thing which we lost so long ago that we no longer have any image of the thing lost. We simply have an ache, an ache that cannot be gotten rid of. The, the solution to this is a re-empowering of the shamanic meme, a taking of the idea of shamanism, pouring it into the best our own self-exploration has given to us, which to my mind means art, psychotherapy, and uh, art, and uh, <laughs> to try to empower these institutions to give back our authenticity that was lost. The cultures that possess shamanism function the entire culture as a shamanic model for those of us who wander in the prodigal's desert of materialism. And through the work of people like Gordon Wasson and Richard Evans Schultes and in the 19th century Richard Spruce, the tools have been catalogued, the magical plants. And I don't believe that shamanism without hallucinogens is authentic shamanism or comfortable shamanism. Now, this is a great debate in anthropology. Merciliad on one side saying, when shamanism turns to narcotics, it has entered a decadent and final phase. The very use of the word narcotics betrays such a botanical naivete <laughs> that you know you're not going to be happy which, with what follows. <laughs> Wasson, on the other hand, said, a shamanism that does not resort to hallucinogenic plants is a shamanism that has lost its roots. A shamanism that relies on ordeals, pathological personalities, and withholding of food is a shamanism that has lost a sense of its techniques and its efficacy. So uh, the last thought I would like to leave with you is, uh, and I hope I'm preaching to the converted, but if there's a single person in this room who doesn't know what I'm about to say, then it's worth repeating. And that is, we are not bullshitting you. This is not yoga. This is not NLP, not to knock those things. This is real. It is so real that you can take the most hardened, rational, reductionist asshole and drop him in to that environment and he will meet his maker, you know? It, it dissolves you. It dissolves you into a confrontation with authentic being. And this is what we are starving for. This is how we've gotten into the messes and mess that we're in. Take seriously the techniques of shamanism. Study the plants. Make real choices. And then don't diddle the dose. Once you've done your homework, go for it. Now to conclude this episode, I'm going to play a track from the Nameless Archive album Mayatastic. The track is called Toltec. 
You can check out more of Nameless Archive's music at namelessarchive.com. As usual, I will post links in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com. Freedom is in the mind. Thank you.